Hi, I'm John Harwood, your host for Bedeviled, a podcast about American democracy from the Paulist Center for Politics at Duke University. We bring you conversations with politicians, journalists, and academics about preserving the delicate balance of our fractious system of self-government. Few Americans know more about the nuts and bolts of American elections than Nate personally. As a professor at Stanford Law School, he teaches about the Constitution, election administration, campaign finance, and other elements of the system by which voters select their local, state, and federal leaders. When President Obama in 2013 named a special commission to explore improvements in the American voting experience, its research director was Nate personally. That makes him ideally suited to analyze the storm swirling around a 2024 campaign that poses an existential threat to the American experiment. The Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that former President Trump's incitement of a violent insurrection following the 2020 election disqualifies him from running again under the 14th Amendment. Others say barring him from the ballot for that reason would itself be an affront to democracy. States have to decide which COVID-era adjustments to voting procedures to keep or discard now that the pandemic has passed. Lack of confidence in the integrity of election results, especially among Republicans, could trigger a fresh legitimacy crisis. Local governments face the challenge of recruiting election workers willing to endure the angry voices and even the possibility of violence. For this new episode of Bedeviled, I'm joined by Nate Persley. Nate Persley, thanks for joining us on Bedeviled. Thanks for having me. Let me start with a big picture. There's a whole lot of talk about threats to democracy right now from President Biden, from you, you even hear it some from Republicans, uh, some from voters, although that may not be top of mind for most voters. But in your mind, is there a threat to democracy in the 2024 election? And if so, define what it is. Well, I do think there is. Uh, I, I do take a different tack on this than I think um, a lot of the uh, political class that you described. Um, on the one hand, there are those who say that um, new laws that were created, say, post 2020 election that are making it difficult to vote are uh, a threat to democracy. Others, uh, of course, um, the Trump campaign and, and, and uh, many Republican supporters worry about election fraud. I actually think the chief threat uh, in the 2024 election is a, a set of forces that lead to voter confusion, uh, that we are not a system right now that can deal a lot with uncertainty. And there have been so many changes in the electoral system um, over the last few years uh, that these new laws plus a record number of election officials who have uh, who are new, who've never uh, run a presidential election before because so many have um, resigned since 2020, uh, plus the incredible scrutiny uh, that's being placed on these election officials and on the electoral process, given um, the given the social media uh, uh, developments, given the um, you know skepticism that so many Americans have of the electoral system, that um, the confidence in the electoral system is in many ways, and the, the lack of confidence in the electoral system is a new challenge uh, for American democracy, and it's something that that greatly concerns me. Let me uh, ask about your level of confidence. Do you believe that in the twenty twenty four presidential election? 
all those eligible will be able to vote if they want to, that their votes will be accurately recorded and their votes will be accurately counted. Yes, I, I have confidence in the election officials to, to run the election in a uh, efficient and fair way. Um, I am concerned about, you know, unforeseen events, um, whether it's violence at the polls or uh, shenanigans uh, leading up to it. Um, but in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of the election, I continue to have confidence uh, in the election officials who, who run it. But in some ways, you know, we, we as we learned in, in 2020, you can have an almost perfect election um, that's run by the responsible officials. And yet uh, people in this case, you know, as much as a third of the population may not believe that it was run fairly. Is that how you would describe the 2020 election as almost perfect in its uh, in how it was run and in the integrity of the results? It was incredible. I mean, I I wrote a piece in, I think, the Wall Street Journal um, uh, around the time of the election, talking about uh, the the heroism of the uh, of the election officials. Uh, Charles Stewart at MIT and I called it the the miracle and tragedy of the 2020 election. And the miracle is that against all these uh, forces, uh, the pandemic, um, skepticism about the election, claims of fraud, uh, we were actually able to uh, run an election with record voter turnout and no significant problems. Um, and you know the fact that you had 60 different court cases that sort of analyzed the entrails of the 2020 election and didn't find any significant problems is, is a real testament to the, the quality of the election officials and, and what they did. Um, but, but, the, but the tragedy of the 2020 election is that it, doesn't, it didn't really make a difference in terms of voter confidence. Um, obviously, because of January 6th and all the, the surrounding events, uh, then there was a substantial share of the population that believed uh, that the election was unfair and that it was rigged and, and, and that there were all kinds of problems. Let me ask you about the 2022 election. And does the fact that that was a smoothly administered election with no violence and no obvious disturbances, at least that I'm aware of, does that tell you that there's some resilience there that we may be overlooking? I hope that's true. Yeah, I, I do think that the 2022 election is also a success story. But but there is, let me draw your attention to one example that sort of raises my concerns um, for 2024. And that is what, what uh, sort of the interplay in Maricopa County between uh, 2020 and 2022. And th this is something that um, highlights how placate, placating conspiracy theories can have real detrimental effects for election administration. You may remember that in the 2020 election, there was a conspiracy theory called Sharpie Gate, which was in Maricopa County that if people use Sharpie markers on their ballots, that then they wouldn't be counted in the election. It was totally false. Um, it was disproven. But nevertheless, Maricopa County, um, uh, for the 2022 election, used heavier paper for its ballots. And what ended up happening in the 2022 election, you may remember the Kerry Lake uh, Senate election there, um, was that several of the precincts did you they were unable to scan those heavier ballots. Mm -hmm. And so another conspiracy theory then arose that Maricopa County was rigging the election against her. And so we see all of these attempts actually to try to to placate um, those who have the most extreme views about what happens in election administration that end up contributing to other problems uh, in future elections. 
Do you think it would be better if elections officials decided not to attempt to placate conspiracy theorists? Well, there are ways to do it uh, uh, so that you can um, have greater transparency. One of the things that the folks in Maricopa County have done, which I think is really wise, is they, they, they bring in some of the critics into the election offices, you know, to just tour around, show them the counting room, show them what they do, have people examine the machines, all of that. Uh, I think is is fine. Um, but one thing we learned since 2020 is that sort of election conspiracy theories are not one thing. <laughs> um, there were sort of a heterogeneous um, variety of election conspiracies and that you can't convince someone who distrusts the electoral process uh, by just rebutting any uh, given argument. Uh, my colleagues at Stanford, uh, Justin Grimmer and Andy Hall, have a paper they've just uh, put up um, that tries to debunk each one of the conspiracy theories from the 2020 election. Um, but if you try to convince someone, for example, that Dominion voting systems worked fine, then they say, well, the problem was that dead people voted. And you say, well, no, there's no evidence of that. Well, it's it's um, non-citizens who voted. Or it was Chinese ballots that, you know, had bamboo fibers in them. Or it was Italian satellites that um, were dispositive. It's a game of whack-a-mole, in other words. Yeah, and you just, you simply can't, persuade them that uh, that there wasn't a conspiracy to the man behind the curtain. Um, and, 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 and that's the problem, because if you, if you try to actually change the rules to accommodate those theories, um, then you could add to sort of new problems. And, and you know, my view th this election is we got to get the rules really clear. Um, we've got to end the litigation as early as possible uh, so that we, we know what the rules are going in no radical changes to the technology or into the voting process, and then try to have as transparent an election as possible. Let me step back for a moment and talk about changes that have occurred uh, in your lifetime and mine. I'm a little older than you, but there have been massive changes in the ease and convenience of voting that I've observed as a reporter. That is the uh, spread of automatic registration, motor voter. You know, you go to a, a motor vehicle office and you get registered. The spread of early voting, the spread of no-fault absentee voting, mail-in balloting. How would you characterize how good a situation we have for voters in this country right now in terms of making it easy to vote? I think it is easier to vote now than at almost any time in American history uh, for the reasons that you suggested. And while it, it, it's fashionable or, or at least um, popular to say, well, that, that there's a kind of um, blue to red in terms of difficulty of voting in the, in the states, that the Democratic states are easier, the red states are, are more difficult, it's much more complicated than that. And you look at places that have historically not had um, mail-in balloting. A lot of them were in the Northeast. Uh, they've made some changes uh, in the last few years. And places like Texas have always had a pretty robust um, uh, early voting system, in-person early voting system, as well as what they call as vote centers, like you said, where you can vote in many different places. And so uh, there's definitely been a move in the last 30 years toward what we call convenience voting, uh, where election officials see themselves as, um, in some ways, customer service folks, where they really try to meet voters where they are to make it uh, easier for them to vote. And we saw during the pandemic that there were extra steps taken to make it more convenient to vote. Now that we're out of the pandemic, 
do you think it is appropriate for some of those measures to be rolled back? Or is this a ratchet that should only go one way, easier and easier and easier over time? So it, it, when I was the research director of the President's Commission on Election Administration, um, which was in the 2013, this was the, the commission that Obama appointed. Actually, Obama's lawyer yes. and, and Romney's lawyer appointed me as a bipartisan commission. I came into that thinking, you know what we need are national voting rules that make it clear. So everybody votes the same way. Let's have, you know, same periods of early voting, mail voting, and and, and similar things. Um, I became convinced throughout that process that the one-size-fits-all um, uh, idea or the a one-size-fits-all proposal would not uh, do great in, in the United States. And so my, my general view is that uh, the the ease of voting in different states in terms of, say, mail voting or early voting yeah, should be different um, because there are unique features like um, the length of the ballot or the number of languages you have to print the ballots and all types of other uh, stuff that I can talk about um, that suggest that you need, you need different um, procedures. Now, I, I don't think it should be a one-way ratchet. There were certain things in the 2020 election where you may have had emergency mail balloting um, procedures that uh, a state might not be able to pull off, you know, in, in, uh, in every election. But what we've seen is that many of those states um, that did not have, a, say, a history of mail voting, um, uh, many of them are moving in that direction because they found that it was, it was, um, it was possible. But when you take a place like New York City, if you remember in the primary elections in, in 2020, they had um, canceled 20% of their mail ballots and uh, because of errors and, and other, other problems. And, and so if you, uh, you know, if you can pull it off and there's no downside to convenience and, there's, and there aren't other costs in the system, then yeah, I think you know, liberalizing to make it easier makes a lot of sense. But, but as I travel around the country talking to election officials, um, it's, it's not always clear that, that one should go down the kind of one-way ratchet and continue to make it easier and easier for people to engage in things like mail balloting or um, other kinds of alternative voting systems. Well, let me ask you about one state in particular, Georgia. Uh, Georgia, of course, is the state where President Trump called and pressured the Secretary of State to go find more votes. The Secretary of State stood up and resisted that pressure. But after the election, he supported a bill that moved through the legislature and was signed by the governor that made some changes in voting procedures. And President Biden attacked that bill and those rollbacks as Jim Crow 2.0, voter suppression. Was that fair? Or do you think some of the elements, for example, in that Georgia bill were well considered and should be rolled back? So one of the difficulties in, in looking at some of these new laws is that while I think a lot of them are motivated by partisanship or motivated by um, uh, other sort of bad intent, um, when you look at the actual effect they're having on elections, it's very hard to see either an aggregate effect on turnout or a discriminatory effect on, um, on different racial groups. And, and Georgia is one of those examples. And so we did not see any suppressive effect in the 2022 election. Um, I'm concerned in the, with respect to the Georgia law about the provision that actually takes power away 
from um, Brad Raffensperger and then puts the um, authority to sort of remove election officials and to engage and to deal with some other aspects in the electoral system in a more partisan appointed board, right? So um, uh, I think that the more that we can give power to the professionals who are in charge of elections and take it away from politicians, I think the better. Um, but I don't think that the Georgia law had the discriminatory effects that people uh, thought it would. Um, nevertheless, there, there, there are there are things in there I I would you know object to. If you remember, there were those early provisions dealing saying that you couldn't um, uh, give give water or food to um, to people in line. The judges have I think struck those down. But 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 just to give you an example of of, of how difficult it is to analyze these things. You know, what, one of the things that Georgia uh, passed was that their mail ballots now, um, you need to put some identifying information like last four digits of your social security number or driver's license on a mail ballot. That was seen as likely suppressive because they didn't have that before. But that's actually the same law that they have in Minnesota, and nobody thinks that that is a particularly uh, suppressive law. So there's situational judgments that get made. Yeah, well, but part of it is that it would, in, particularly in presidential elections, if people really want to vote, they're they're going to vote. Now, I, I don't want to come out in praise of of law. I think it I think it was motivated um, to make uh, voting more difficult. Um, I'm worried about what it's going to mean to for election officials to implement it, uh, and it's it's possible that it will have some of the effects that um, the critics have, have said it would. Um, but at least at this stage, we haven't seen evidence of that, and. Um, I think there there are so many other problems in the electoral system uh, that I I, I really want us uh, you know to focus on those and and you know the Georgian election officials who I've talked to and and met with um, are at least of the view that this law will not be difficult to implement and is not going to have um, a a disparate uh, racial impact. Uh, but like I said, that that provision that I think makes election administration in Georgia more partisan is the thing that I am worried about. Just to put a, a point on this part of the discussion, uh, would you say that in the main, attempts at voter suppression do not work because they generate a energy on the side of the people whose votes might be suppressed? Yeah. Yes, but that also is a genuine effect. So it, it may require, for example, that those who are worried about voter turnout spend more money to try to mobilize their voters. Uh, th there's there's two effects that you're identifying. One is backlash that people say, I'll show you, I'm going to turn out and vote. And it, and it leads to anger at people then going and waiting in line and, and voting. Uh, but it also might lead to, say, voter protection groups having to spend a lot of money to try to get their people out. And and that's that's not a good effect. I mean, that's something that is a real cost of uh, vote suppressive laws. Uh, but but that's why to return to my original theme that that um, we the most important thing is that we have clear rules so that the voters, candidates, and parties know um, what it takes to get out and vote, and that we have you know we try to address some of the confusion that um, I think is plaguing the electoral process now. Let me ask two other things about the uh, voting and process before getting to what I would call the supply side, that is the situation for candidates getting on the ballot. Right. How would you characterize the general move that has been pushed in some quarters that you suggested a moment ago of 
taking election administration, taking the redistricting process uh, for Congress, uh, in addition, out of the hands of partisans and into the hands of nonpartisan professionals. Is that stalled? Is that making progress over the long term? Well, so I would separate out election administration and, and redistricting. So I, I think election administration is, um, uh, you know, the, the, the more that we can develop a kind of professionalized election administration bureaucracy, the better. And um, we need to treat it like a profession so that people, you know, get graduate degrees in it and go into it. Um, and I am very concerned about taking um, uh, power away from those folks and giving it to the people sometimes who are actually on the ballot and administering their own election. A redistricting raises a lot of other concerns. Um, there are, I think, good examples of what I call nonpartisan redistricting uh, reforms. California, where I was actually a skeptic of their uh, redistricting law, which leads, which which uh, transferred power to a not a, a I want to say a, not a nonpartisan commission, but a multipartisan commission with nonpartisan objectives, has worked well. Iowa does does a good job, but it is extremely difficult to um, build institutions that are authentically nonpartisan uh, to run redistricting um, because everybody knows where everybody lives. And, and, and so you've got to get people who are uh, dedicated to, to sort of neutral principles and the drawing of lines. Okay. Let's talk about the supply side candidates. Um, in the Democratic nomination process right now, Dean Phillips, who's challenging President Biden, says that the Biden campaign is being hypocritical because some states are canceling primaries where he might otherwise have a chance to challenge Biden and get votes, and that that is a threat to democracy like the one that Biden is warning about coming from Trump. Do you think Phillips has a point? Well, I think that that he ought to be able to compete on a level playing field. I, I don't regard his candidacy as terribly serious. So, so I don't see the, um, you know, the injury as particularly grave as, as one might, if there were, um, a, uh, you know, competitive primary, I'll tell you the first case that I ever worked on as a lawyer was representing John McCain, uh, to get him on the ballot in, uh, New York state in the 2000 election. And it seems crazy at that time that he was basically being kept off in the presidential primary, uh, especially when he actually had won the New Hampshire uh, primary. So um, I, I, you know, as a philosophical matter, I think Phillips uh, has a point, but I don't see it as as, as grave an injustice. Um, uh, the, the Obviously, what's happening on the Republican side is much more serious, I think. How about the situation with respect to potential third-party candidates or independent candidacies? Um, you get some complaints about how it's difficult for somebody like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to get on the ballot. Uh, does he try as an independent candidate or does he form a political party because that may be easier or attach himself to the Libertarian Party? Do you think the rules for the Jill Steins and Cornell West and Robert Kennedy Jr.'s, no labels for that matter, for those kind of uh, political forces to get on the ballot, are those rules adequate? Be too difficult? What would you say? I think in general they're they're okay. Um, I've you know I teach these cases in my class, and and you know the general rule is that 
you have to gather signatures of a certain percentage uh, in each state in order to get on the ballot. Um, it is certainly costly and, um, you know, not, not easy, but uh, it's, it's hard to say what exactly the, the test should be. I'll say, you know, one of the things that's happened in the last 25 years um, uh, since Bush versus Gore is that we we have started and courts have started to take the issue of voter confusion seriously. And so, um, you know, the, the 2000 election would have actually come out differently if there weren't 12 candidates on the Palm Beach butterfly ballot, um, if you remember that. In the in the 2000 oh, election, I remember it very well. If 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 it was the, if you know part of the reason they had these complicated ballots was because they tried to accommodate every single uh, party that's on there. Now I think it's a mistake if you know we we just bias the system in favor of the two major parties. You have to make sure there's competition, um, and you don't want it to be uh, too burdensome. But it's hard for me to say that right now it's it's so burdensome uh, for these minor parties that they're unable to compete. Okay, let's talk about the sexiest ballot access, candidate ballot access issue that is surfaced in the election. And that is the question of whether President Trump is disqualified or should be disqualified legally from running for president as a result of his participation, encouragement, incitement of January 6th. As you know, you've got some esteemed constitutional lawyers on the left and the right making the case that this is a perfect application of the part of the 14th Amendment that says you can't run uh, if you're an officer of the United States who participated in an insurrection. There's a legal question there. There's also a political question. If you, if it, you could be disqualified legally, is it politically wise to do so? How do you see the various forces at play there? Well, I believe that the Supreme Court is going to overturn the decision in Colorado uh, that took uh, Donald Trump off the ballot there. Uh, I think that they, you know, are a court that is concerned about um, electoral chaos. And I think they want to sort of keep their powder dry in case they need to use it later in the election so that they could be seen as, um, uh, you know, fair and 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 not biased. I, I think that um, these are extraordinary times. Uh, January 6th was an extraordinary event. I do think, you know, there, there are good arguments that um, it was an insurrection and um, that Donald Trump, through his actions, may have engaged in it. Um, the, the, the other questions are, are very naughty uh, regarding the disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, whether whether the president is an officer of the United States, it seems like a crazy idea that we would say he's not. But the uh, Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment only applies to officers of the United States, and and one of the arguments in this case, the first argument actually made by Trump's lawyers, uh, is that he's technically not covered by Section Three. Um, I I would be surprised if the if the court actually used that ground to. Um, to say that it doesn't apply to them because it would seem as a very technical way to resolve this controversy. But I could see them making the technical argument that at the stage of the primary election, that actually the state of Colorado um, can't tell the Republican Party um, how to select its delegates to its national convention. Um, and because the fact that we're at the primary election right now makes things a little bit different than if we were at the general. I've also seen um, the 
argument made by some conservative legal experts that the 14th Amendment would prohibit you from taking office, but not from running in the election. That is a valid point, because the words are that it prohibits um, people who've taken oaths and, and committed insurrection from holding office, not from running for office. And so my colleague, Michael McConnell, former judge who's, who's at, teaches at Stanford now, has written an article making that argument. Again, that's a, that's a, a technical, sort of a real sort of lawyer's argument. The problem with both that argument and the party's argument that I mentioned before, the primary argument, is that um, it then leaves until the election and the certification and the electoral college and the vote in the House of Representatives, the possibility that you could say, all right, yeah, he, he was able to run, but he's not allowed to hold the office. So even though maybe a majority of Americans have voted for him, we, the Congress or the courts, are going to disqualify him from office. And that I agree with um, uh, another law professor's brief that was filed by Rick Hass and Ned Foley and, and my uh, friend Ben Ginsburg, uh, that that would be a recipe for disaster. We, we, I do hope that the Supreme Court resolves this issue in a very clear way, even if it's kind of rough justice, um, uh, so that we know what the rules are going into the 2024 election. Well, let me try to get your personal bottom line, because there are many people who say, well, obviously, he ought to be disqualified on the basis of this provision. Obviously, it was an insurrection. Obviously, he was an officer of the United States. But it may be politically unwise to do so because of the situation in the country right now. Is that basically your view? Um, well, I actually think the legal argument with respect to primaries is a very good one on um, the side of Donald Trump. What about the general election? Um, for the general election, I am. I, I think it's a, it's a stronger argument um, to disqualify, but I, I think that I am worried about courts coming in and uh, making this determination on their own. And more importantly, that I, I'm worried about each state making that decision. So, so what we could end up having as a result of, of you know, Colorado's actions is that you could have some states where he's on the ballot, some states where he's not. And I don't think that is a, a system that is you know, prescribed in the Constitution. So does that mean that even if there were no political considerations at play, if you weren't worried about a backlash from the millions of people who support Donald Trump, you think it's not a slam dunk legal case? Well, I, I, it's definitely not a slam dunk legal case. Um, uh, and, and I'm sympathetic to the arguments that are made by uh, the voters in Colorado and, and elsewhere that you know say that, look, this is what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is about. Um, um, but I, I think that there's enough ambiguity here uh, regarding the sort of the conditions under which we would disqualify him that I would, you know, let the voters decide instead of having the judges decide. Let me conclude by asking about a, a political question and getting your view on this. As I've covered the issue of threat to democracy and talked to people who are concerned about it, what I hear from some people saying, including some conservatives, is that if you care about preserving democracy in the United States, there is only one outcome that will achieve that, and that is electing Joe Biden, that Joe Biden has to win to salvage democracy in the United States. Now, that's an argument that when you make it out loud, it sounds kind of crazy because 
democracy is about choices and voters having choices. Do you believe that it is an exaggeration or hyperbole to say that the future of democracy in the United States depends on Joe Biden winning the election? So here, here's one where I'm, I'm going to have to punt on the, this question, in part because as someone who gets appointed by courts a lot to deal with election disputes, um, I, I don't want to come out as forcefully and say uh, something like that. Uh, what I will say is that um, the how this election is conducted um, and the faith that people have in it, um, as well as the response of, of the candidate who wins, is going to be absolutely dispositive for the future of American democracy. Um, I think that, uh, that you know it's fashionable over the last, I don't know, three or four elections to say this is a, an existential election. This is going to most important election in our lifetimes or in American history. I do believe that in 2024. And so uh, what happens in 2024, I think, is going to set the rules for American democracy going forward. Well, let me try one other way of posing the question. Do you have children? I do. How confident are you that uh, 15, 20 years from now, that your children are going to enjoy the benefits of democracy the way that you and I have in our lives? I am not confident. I, I am I am uh, very worried, and I um, think that decisions that are made now are going to affect democracy over the next uh, two decades. Um, uh, and I actually think that democracy in the United States is going to be under stress for some time. Um, that even you know whoever wins in the the fall election is going to uh, we are still going to be living with these challenges to American democracy. Uh, because there has been this dramatic uh, collapse in confidence in the electoral system. What do you think is, uh, add one more question here, what do you think is the source of the threat? Why are we experiencing at this point in our history that threat? Well, I, I mean, I think when you have political elites, um, and this is not just politicians, but also in the media and in social media, who are basically casting doubt on the fundamental tenets of American democracy, it's no surprise that then tens of millions of people uh, follow their lead. And so, you know, the, the institutions we always thought were uniquely strong in the United States, um, but all it takes is, is a movement and uh, people who are uh, pushing these narratives to then uh, uh, convince people that actually, you know, the system is rigged, that it's it's out to get you, um, that there's, you know, uh, conspiracies that are afoot trying to to take away your votes, and and I think that's you know the, that's the problem, um, and we, it, and that's why changes in voting rules, whether making more liberal or conservative, are not going to solve that problem because um, um, we need elites to behave in a different way. Well, I mean. Just push one step further into what propels elites to act that way. When you think about it, do you think it's about the post-industrial economy and, and changes that have dislocated people, changed their way of life? Is it about migration patterns and the fact that the United States is soon going to be a majority-minority country? Are those the underlying drivers that are causing to... Uh, elites to act in a way that uh, diminishes confidence. Well, so there, this this is a multi-pronged question. So, it, as we think about loss in confidence, we need to think about sort of loss in confidence in what and where. And so, we are seeing a loss in confidence around the world. And so, the fact that um, it's happening in the United States, it's not unique here. 
Um, and and part a lot of this has to do with just the populist backlash against elites that has many sources and and you've identified some of them whether it's it's immigration or globalization or just a feeling that the modern economy um, and political institutions and for that matter media institutions are not living up to the the promise. Add on to that um, the fact that we have a complete kind of dissolution of intermediary institutions that have buttressed democracy over the last, you know, 60 years, uh, particularly I'm thinking about political parties and the mainstream media, um, where those institutions have eroded in part with, with media, it's because of technological changes so that there's no one today who can get up on, on a TV screen and say what Walter Cronkite used to say, which is that's just the way it is because no one trusts any uh, individual to, to carry that message, that that has a, you know, th that then gives voice and amplification to um, those on the fringes who want to traffic in conspiracy theories or other kinds of extremist rhetoric. Well, I, I think you're right. And I will close with a uh, the hope that circumstances in the country change so that we might restore a time when Americans had confidence in um, a common set of facts, a common interpretation of where we are in our history. And I think, uh, Nate, personally, you've helped us understand uh, in this discussion um, the reality of our voting process, and I appreciate you joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Bedeviled. This podcast is possible because of the Polis Center for Politics at Duke University. It's produced by Polis Director Professor Deandra Rose and Maria Luisa Fresson Nori. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. You can listen to Bedeviled at polis.duke.edu or on all podcast platforms.